your tremor can be stopped at the push of the button. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, to me, it's still, after all these years in the field and during surgery, it's this magical moment and you wish we had at least symptom relief for other diseases at the push of the button. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello everybody, welcome to the first episode of Stimulating Brains. So far, this is an experiment. I don't know how many episodes we'll do. But the plan is to interview inspiring colleagues and researchers in the field of neuromodulation. And to start off, I thought to begin with history. The history of stereotactic surgery with a focus on Europe and even Germany. And to the best of my knowledge, I could convince the best person able to serve as an interview partner here. So please join me in welcoming the person who knows every cell by name, the person who knows every corner and angle of the thalamus by heart. Please join me in welcoming Christian Moll from the University Clinic in Hamburg. Christian, as you know, this is an experiment. So the whole podcast is an experiment. Are you comfortable to be part of an experiment? No, like certainly. I mean, I do, I do experiments all, all the time. We did some experiments today in the, in the operating room. So I'm, I would say I'm, I'm well prepared. I'm, I'm happy to join you and I'm, I'm, I'm glad, both glad and, and honored to be part of this experiment. For the few of you who might not know Christian, he, um, so what I, my picture of Christian is actually that he's, at least in Germany, the capacity of like electrophysiology. He's really done a lot of microelectrode recordings in the OR for the brain simulation surgeries. But as maybe a little bit less known, I think Christian is also really knowledgeable about anatomy of the brain, especially, of course, anatomy that concerns functional neurosurgery. And um, maybe even a bit more obscure is that Christian is also very knowledgeable about history of um, functional neurosurgery. And especially, I would say, or I would guess um, the European or German even side. So um, weirdly, we will choose to focus a little bit on that topic today. And um, I still wanted to start off with some general questions. And there's one funny question to break the ice, which is what's your favorite brain region, Christian? My favorite brain region. Oh, that's a very tough one. I, um, well, yeah, my favorite brain region. We're sticking around quite a lot in the subthalamic nucleus and everyone, everyone seems to like it and it seems to be the preferred uh, brain region for functional uh, neurosurgeons these days. But my, my favorite, that's a tough question, actually. Um, <laughs> it's also one you couldn't prepare for. So, 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 so maybe just say it. What's your favorite brain region now? Any, that's absolutely clear to me. No doubt it's the claustrum. It's the speed <laughs> of consciousness. Great. Absolutely. There's no doubt the claustrum is the most unappreciated structure in the brain. It's also so, so, so large. It's large, right? It's very thin, I know, but it's very large. It's, it's wonderful. It's yeah. beautiful yeah. and it's unappreciated and not understood. And <laughs> I'd like to see it as the seat of consciousness and I'd like to attribute it with many more functions. Great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So then, then also just to, to break the ice some more so our listeners can get a picture of you as a person, what do you do, maybe before we start with the scientific part, what do you do if you like don't work on scientific projects? I know that's a tough question for many of us, but what do you like to do like in your free time? Well, in my free time, I love spending the, the free time that I have, I spend with my family, with my wife and my four lovely kids. And having four entropy machines at home, you know, keeps you busy. And uh, actually, then the question is, is answered. So I love spending time 
playing football with the boys, uh, enjoying the, the family life. Yeah, that's basically it these days, right? Uh, yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. All right, lovely. So, so then let's let's dive into um, maybe the more academic uh, professional life. So, I would be really curious about your academic career and like who were defining role models in your career and and why did, did someone truly stick out? Um, who influenced and shaped the way you think about neurology and the brain? Well, it, it's. Actually, I, I think I would go back to my student days when I was a medical student at Freiburg University in the mid-90s. And I was strongly influenced by two eminent uh, teachers in the preclinical uh, faculty there. The one was the physiologist uh, Rainer Greger, and the other was the neuroanatomist uh, Michael Frotcher, who many of you may, may know. And, and these were two, I would say, still up to date highly influential and perhaps without having known them personally they certainly did not know that perhaps their their teaching uh, was kind of also so influential to me that i found my way into to the field of uh, functional neuroanatomy that i'm working in so both had outstanding teaching skills and they had uh, impressive didactic capabilities so in these days you have to imagine uh, powerpoint was available but both of them reiner greger and uh, michael frotscher they just had pieces of chalk they had a blackboard and they had their audience and It was just fascinating to see their teachings how and and they, they they stood out with their intellectual honesty and also at the same time with their personal integrity and both of them through their teachings both and the content they provided and Michael Frotscher the neuroanatomist he provided us with a, a wonderful entrance card into the world of uh, Neuroanatomy, neurology, and uh, later he also became the the editor of of the textbook of Dues, which the German medical students perhaps may know. It's then it's an outstanding textbook on uh, the essence of uh, functional neuroanatomy. Yeah, interesting. Funnily, I was also uh, taught by Michael Frotscher, in fact, uh, with the Frotscher'sche Farbenlehre. Okay. I, I still remember that. So he always used the same colors for... Exactly. So, and that... I still have my lecture notes and once in a while I just go back to them and, and, and see how much I can learn the way they did their teaching, their sincerity and... Uh, Yeah, that actually had a long-lasting influence, which is still vivid um, today. Great. That, that's really nice to hear. All right. So, so maybe just let's dive into the main topic of today. Um, so many, as I mentioned, know you as a physiologist in the OR and um, an expert in microelectrode recordings and the sorts. Not as many would know that, in my opinion, you have a vast knowledge in anatomy as well. But on conversations that we had before, one keen interest of yours is also the history of medicine, particularly the one of deep brain stimulation. And um, I, I wanted to start with a placative story that you told me. Um, so you mentioned that psychosurgery started in Germany much later than in the US for a particular reason. Um, and do you consider psychosurgery in the U.S. as the beginnings of ablative surgery that paved the way to deep brain stimulation? And can you maybe share some insights on, on these very beginnings? The eminent figures in the field of um, psychosurgery at that time in the U.S. were Walter Freeman and James Watts, uh, Walter Freeman, neurologist, and James Watts, the neurosurgeon, and uh, They had done uh, work following pioneering work that had been done by the Portuguese neurologist and psychiatrist uh, Egas Moniz. And they knew about this work and they were in contact with uh, John Fulton, an eminent physiologist who was very influential for the whole of frontal lobe surgery 
who basically, with his work on monkeys, had a lasting influence on, on Egas Moniz, so that he did carry out the first front lobe surgeries uh, in, in Portugal. But the work of Freeman and Watts in, in the United States and Washington University, that was most uh, influential on a larger scale. And it was so uh, deeply founded in, in, in theory. And they, they wrote a book on their work and they summarized their findings of the early years of frontal lochotomy. And this book uh, called Psychosurgery, was highly influential. It was a, in, in the best sense, a comprehensive neuroscience book on the function and on the anatomy, the function, the pathology of the frontal lobes. So, and it's still worth reading today, I would say. And this book also included kind of a, a, a recipe for psychosurgery and how to perform frontal lobe surgery. And so I think one day James Watts phrased it such like, yeah, you would read this book and then you could do the surgery and then you could perform the surgery. <laughs> and so they were, sh and, and this, this book was really influential and it, it uh, was shipped throughout the world. It went to South America uh, in, in, in the, uh, during World War II. But the ship that was sent to, to Europe was destroyed by a German uh, submarine boat. So it never arrived uh, uh, on the continent. And this is one major reason the frontal lobe surgery um, um, disseminated over continental Europe and Great Britain uh, later, and in particular, arrived in Germany right after the end of the Second World War. This is certainly one important reason why psychosurgery in Germany started late. Plus, of course, in addition, the uh, experiences the psychiatrists um, had um, done or, or had during the Nazi era. So the euthanasia and with uh, the, the crimes sure, and, sure. and so on yeah. and so forth. So the psychiatric community in Germany, the ones who were then um, back in the field right after the end of World War II, many of them were really resistant and, and um, against the ideas to perform uh, psychosurgery and have this invasive uh, treatments. So you said basically, if I summarize that up, that the German U-boat, the German submarine, um, destroyed the book and that's why it started later in Germany. But then at some point, <laughs> and at some point we, we did, uh, like Germany did develop um, uh, ablative surgery. So what were the beginnings here or who were the main proponents who, who started with Well, yeah, it's, it's a question also about the beginnings of neurosurgery. I mean, neurosurgery uh, in, in these days did not really exist as an um, academic discipline, right? So it, it was still a very young discipline, and there were few people involved in the field and the community of uh, neurosurgery in Germany was rather small. And the most influential uh, school was the school of Wilhelm Tönnies, okay. who was uh, also trained uh, um, uh, in, in Stockholm with Olive Kroner, for instance. And he worked in Würzburg. And after the Second World War, he uh, started um, and he expanded in Bochum and, and later in Cologne. And he is traditionally seen as the most influential uh, and founding father of German neurosurgery. And uh, his, his scholars were also involved or at least partly involved in psychosurgical uh, attempts in, in, in Germany. For instance, um, 
one of his scholars is also Traugott Richard, who later became one of the leading stereotactic neurosurgeons yeah. at Freiburg University. So Freiburg was a, was a big center in the early days for, for stereotactic surgery, right? And, and even in, in Europe, and you could even say in, in, in the world. So Freiburg with uh, this unique combination of the neurosurgeon Traugott Richard together with the neurophysiologist uh, and neurologist uh, Richard Jung, together with Rolf Hassler, the eminent neuropathologist and neuroanatomist. Yeah. Um, this unique combination really was the prerequisite to become what was later known as one of the leading centers of stereotaxy uh, around the world. And, and many, many well-known researchers and neurosurgeons just, you know, traveled to, to Freiburg to learn and, and went to, uh, to learn from Richard and later from uh, Fritz Munninger and Yeah. Yeah. So it was. So you, so you mentioned Hustler and and um, and and Mundinger. And from Mundinger, we still know the frame. From Hustler, we still know a lot of things. But also the nomenclature of the thalamus, which is used in the Schaltenbrand Warenatlas, that most people still know. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to the next question. Um, in one of your presentations, I've seen you drew up an academic family tree that um, where the protagonist you just talked about. So uh, these early heroes in Freiburg basically could be traced back to even Karl Wernicke, uh, which we know from Wernicke's area. And um, in, in that time, so dating back even further, um, I think there was still a general debate about whether function in the brain is in part localized at all, right? So, which is now very clear to us, but, but I think in those times, um, findings from like Broca and Dax, Fritsch and Hitzig and so on uh, stood opposed to concepts by others like Florent, um, who propagated that the cortex was a unitary structure. Right. And then Wernicke's finding added to that, um, showing not only that the cortex is localized to some degree, but also maybe that it's more complicated because he could show that it's not only Broca's area that is important for language, but there's a different area. So it, it, it seems to be more complex. And I think, as you mentioned as well in your talks, the anatomical development did influence, of course, functional neurosurgery quite much. So my question is, how important is anatomy in what we do and also in, in what um, Hassler and, and Mundinger did in, in Freiburg. Back yeah, then. I mean, it's a, very, it's a very good question. And I think the whole field of functional neurosurgery would not exist without, you know, the work of the founding fathers of uh, neurology. And this also means so during the first phase and the, the last quarter of the 19th century, the, the work of the neuroanatomists. So it was basically the anatomical period of neurology, I would also say, the, the pathological mm. period where most was learned, like Broca, for instance, or Wernicke by the correlation of post-mortem pathological specimen findings uh, uh, with, with the clinical uh, phenotype that was seen before. And this correlation uh, was highly important the, these days. And it also paved the way for people like Kleist and Ottfried Furster, who then, you know, uh, were highly influential to, to shape the field of functional neurosurgery. Or uh, Ottfried Furster may perhaps be uh, is one of the most important figures here in Germany. He was at Breslau. He was a pupil of Wernicke directly. And Wernicke is also the author of one of the very first atlases of the human brain and, and first Ottfried Furster, a neurologist who later more or less by accident started to operate on the brains himself and became a surgical neurologist. Ottfried Furster is also an author um, of one of these volumes of the Brain Atlas of Wernicke. Sorry to interrupt you, but what, what time are we at? Maybe just um, can you add like... When did when when was that? When when uh, what year are we talking about currently? Yeah, it was roughly at the turn uh, of the 19th century, and and Wernicke, uh, um, how to say that he he died in his 
early years. He was relatively young when he, but uh, first uh, um, in Breslau, he was um, influenced. So his experiences uh, also during the First World War, the World Wars, uh, not only the second, but also the First World War with the terrible wounds that uh, in very tragic ways, um, the neurologists and the surgeons out in the fields uh, would learn a lot um, in, in a condensed period of time by all, all the different fractures and, and, and uh, uh, bullet wounds and uh, that would mm. uh, occur in every region of the brain and so on. So this also was very influential to the development of this um, this view to the brain. Yeah. You mentioned that first uh, started to operate by accident. Yeah, well, so it was like it, that was in, in during the First World War. And he was a neurologist, right? He was at, he was at Breslau and his surgeon, was, he had diagnosed, I don't know, a tumor or whatever, hydrocephalus, or he would refer that to his surgeon, uh, Mikulic, but he was uh, serving in the armies. So it was just, uh, he was desperate to have a, a surgeon. And so he decided to do it himself. And that was the starting point for first his career as a surgical neurologist in, I don't know, like something 1917 or so. I, I, I know one book by Ottfried Förster, which is a lot of text and a lot of like about uh, movement disorders and so on. But there's one drawing that is basically mm -hmm. a reproduction of a drawing from the Vogts of the mm -hmm. striatal um, pathway. So the yeah. it's from 1920, if I'm correct. So yeah. so these these pathways between the cortex, the striatum, and the basal ganglia and so on were so meticulously known already back then. And I think that the work of the Vogts was really influential in that regard. Is that correct? So they were, of course, highly influential. And both of them, they and, and Cecil Ford in, in particular, they um, came up with brain circuits and with their dedication to uh, anatomy. And they improved uh, and, and pushed the technology, the anatomical technology of staining, smiling stainings, and so on and so forth um, to, to a uh, higher level. And the, the sectionings of the brain and uh, part of their collection still uh, lives on in Düsseldorf in, in the Vogt Institute. So, yeah, and, and, and these were the days when the Vogts and, and also First and Wilson and, and other people, they um, together formed what became then known as the dichotomy be between the pyramidal and the extrapyramidal uh, motor systems. Very nice. So, so you would say anatomy does shape, I mean, it's a no-brainer. And it was, of course, a rhetorical question that anatomy is important for what we do. There's this saying of a, a famous German anatomist who worked uh, at the turn of the 19th century in Heidelberg, Tiedemann, and he, he said a physician with anatomy is like a mole, so he's working in the complete dark, and this is certainly true for for the whole of the field, for our field, it's it, it can't be more true than that, that's that's for sure. So did, did the folks and other anatomists directly shape the stereotactic field? I, I If I remember correctly, you mentioned that they were in direct contact or even like the mentors of Hustler, is that correct? Yeah, that, 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 that's correct. So Hustler is the offspring of the folk. So Hustler, uh, uh, together with the folks already at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute of Brain Research that the folks had founded basically. Uh, and later after uh, Vogt was forced to retire and you know having studied in Freiburg you know Neustadt am Tittisee yes. and there is this uh, research uh, institute uh, the building still exists today and and Hasler did his work on the thalamus uh, under supervision and in close collaboration with the folks and so his work on the substantia nigra which is well known which basically is uh, the core of our modern neuroanatomical understanding of the substantia nigra in the late 30s and then the, his work on the thalamus and he used the collection 
of the folk. So he had wonderful brain specimen and, and slices of healthy and diseased brains with wonderful stainings and with the clearest pictures. So it was a, a, a combination of uh, exceptional material and a brilliant uh, a neuroscientist. Mm. Do you know whether he ever was a lab colleague of um, Brotmann then? No, no, no. Brotmann is much earlier. Brotmann died uh, shortly after the first World War. It's a tragic story with Brotmann, but that does work. Okay. So Brotmann is one of the earliest collaborators of the folks when they founded their uh, private new anatomical research station in Berlin. But uh, Corbinian Brotmann never really arrived in the German academia uh, until his last years. So that was really a, a tragic uh, story. I mean, he had come up with this uh, masterpiece of cytoarchitectonic relation of the cortex in different species. And he was certainly the master scholar of the folks. And uh, the fact that he wouldn't make it to German academia, but so shed some light on the uh, the position that the folks themselves uh, had. So, and the um, the friction and the tension that was the, the neuroscience field in Germany uh, in these days. Maybe going back to Hassler, yeah. how did he shape? the field in Freiburg then. So how not only him, but also the others in the early Freiburg Well, days. yeah, so Rolf Hassler, um, he joined the Department of uh, Neurology first under uh, Beringer, who died shortly after the Second World War. But Beringer was also responsible that the neurosurgeon Richard came to Freiburg. Mm -hmm. And also Richard Jung then took over the Department of Neurology. So there were then left Hustler, the neuroanatomist, neuropathologist, but also clinician, neurologist and psychiatrist. Richard, the neurosurgeon, and Richard Jung, yeah. the neurologist. And these three people, it was a unique combination of masterminds. And they together gave lectures on neurosurgical patients, uh, patients from the ward of Traugott Riecher. And they were then elaborating all facets of neuroanatomy and, and the uh, physiology and so clinical neurophysiology and neurology. And yeah, Hasler was the mastermind. He knew the thalamus. Uh, Richard was a skilled neurosurgeon and he had done some work on arteriography uh, before and he was also interested in uh, adapting new techniques. So he saw the necessity to um, change from open, non-targeted psychosurgery to more targeted, more precise interventions. And so he saw that the psychosurgical interventions that um, carried out the frontal leukotomies, they resulted in non-reproducible outcomes. And also judging from the pathological materials, they could see that they were far too unspecific. And uh, one time you would have a larger lesion and in a certain region of the frontal lobe and no patient yeah. was alike and the same. And this was, of course notoriously difficult to interpret and so yeah and they and Richard then created this this first preliminary version of his frame which later became known as the Richard Mundinger frame but before Fritzinger joined his team in the mid 50s or in the early 50s um, he teamed up with uh, Wolf. He uh, created a first targeting device under the influence of Hustler's ideas and where to his small circumscribed lesions uh, in the uh, terminals of the frontothalamic tracts. Um, he then started 
this more what he called gestufte leukotomy, so it was a targeted and more circumscribed leukotomy in the in the vicinity of the thalamus and uh, the fiber fields that run to the frontal cortex. Very nice. What what I also found very interesting, if you now speak about inventors, right? These these physicians had to be inventors somehow. Um, what you showed me in in, in your slides before was. Um, that they sometimes had electrodes with a side electrode. So it was an ablative electrode for, for lesioning. And then from that, you could mm -hmm. extend a side electrode to, to yeah. have a lateral lesion um, to that. And I think you mentioned that it could even be that they sometimes targeted the STN while doing the thalamus at the same time. Uh, that's for sure. That's for sure. I mean, this is one of the examples uh, where the a new surgical target was, again, discovered by more or less coincidence or trial and error. So these in the early days, there in the early days, and I'm speaking now of the stereotactic method was firstly applied in 1947 by Spiegel and Weisses in Philadelphia in the United States. And uh, so I'm when I'm referring to the early days of stereotactic surgery, I'm referring, say, to the first decade or so of stereotactic surgery. And it was it was it was the golden era. It was the golden age of stereotactic surgery and uh, so one of the challenges was to produce reproducible so lesions of that were not only placed at, in the same spot of the brain of the patient but that also to create a reproducible size and extension uh, volume of tissue that could then be made responsible for the clinical effect. And this was notoriously difficult in the early days. Many, many different methods had been tested. There are many ways to skin a cat <laughs> and there are many ways to burn and destroy brain tissue. And most of, mo most of them have been tested in this first decade of stereotactic neurosurgery and uh, sometimes the, the neurosurgeons would place a lesion in the ventral and the oral part of the thalamus mm -hmm. and they would assume that the lesion volume would um, just cover parts of the thalamus but if they had through tragic circumstances the opportunity to Ooh. look at mortem specimen they would uh, see that Sometimes and not too infrequent, the lesion would extend to the subthalamic region. And this is the traditional correlation method that basically is at the core uh, of the founding fathers of neurology in the 19th century. So you have lesions in the brain and you just correlate it with the clinical course. And this is exactly what the stereotactic and functional neurosurgeons then did in the early days. And they found out that by extending lesions to the subthalamic region, this would have beneficial clinical effects on rigidity alleviation in particular. And so therefore, they then decided to deliberately uh, place lesions somewhat deeper and more precise. Sure. It's also one of the prototypic stories that tells you how progress in our field was achieved. So it was trial and error. Yeah. It was by meticulous observation and correlation of lesions with the clinical course. Makes sense. So if, if, we, if we transport these concepts to the more like modern day um, stereotactic surgery. We, we already had, you know, anatomists, we had maybe even anatomists that were very good at what they did. Then we had surgeons and we had inventors among them and they had stereotactic frames. They also had side electrodes to steer the current. Um, what challenges were the same back then and now? And are there others that we have somehow overcome if you compare? Yeah, over, overcome or I don't know, perhaps. I mean, what, what, what can we learn from these days? I mean, if you look, I think the one thing you can learn from the early days of stereotactic surgeries, every center that really had long-lasting influence and great success in what they were doing, it was an interdisciplinary team. It was a cooperation of people, uh, governing different fields of neuroscience. So yeah. every surgeon had to team up with an anatomist 
or at least with a pathologist and with someone who had sections of the brain. Because you have to imagine the first stereotactic atlas came only in 1952 yeah. by Spiegel and Weiss. But this was kind of hard to handle. They had an unusual reference point and so on. But uh, then it took a few more years until a valid and a solid uh, stereotactic atlas, mm -hmm. the first edition of the Schaltenbrand Bailey at that time, was, was available to the field. And up to then, at least up to then, but even further, neurosurgeons had to team up with an anatomist. At that time, it was readily recognized the difficulty concerning the inter-individual differences and the variability between the brain, which is still a challenge today, right? Even in, in our days, even in these days, they, they did meticulous studies on the variability on the target region of interest. I mean, they had to, right? They had to know how variable are, are these um, structures from each other. Exactly. But it's still, I mean, we, we could think that even with the best anatomical method that we have today, we, we don't have to go back to these studies anymore. Or we, we, because we see the structures. In an optimal world, you see, you do direct targeting, and you see, and what you see is what you get, and what you get is what you stimulate or so. But even then, you may see some fiber tracks with DTI and so on, but it may still not represent the true picture, which is responsible for also inter-individual differences in the outcomes that we see, even if we place DBS electrodes by help of th these wonderful uh, techniques that we have at hand in the very same position today. Yeah. You cannot be sure that the clinical effect is the very same for every patient. And there's still some inter-individual difference. For instance, in the fiber courses, which is uh, highly important to the uh, outcome in the context of electrical stimulation, as we all know, yeah. and still um, too little is known. And today's methods have their limitations. And it's important, I would say, also to acknowledge this limitation, uh, which may also be a, a drive for us, you know. Definitely, to improve things, right? Would you, would you say we should still team up with anatomists if we're um, doing this? Oh, yes, definitely. I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that this, after a long time where, you know, interdisciplinary cooperation, and, and, and certainly I, I'm, that was highly important for the success of deep brain simulation. If you, for instance, uh, look back to where it all started, the modern era of DBS in Grenoble, it was the neurosurgeon Alim Louis Benabit together with the neurologist Polak, Pierre Polak. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and in many other centers, neurologists teamed up with the neurosurgeons. And the neurosurgeons, many of them are mastering the whole field of neuroanatomy very well. But still, I would say, I mean, a functional neurosurgeon, people are so specialized, or to put it differently, I think the collaboration with an anatomist in particular these days will be one of the keys to success and further development to our field. That, that applies to the, the more novel targets even more so, right? I mean, probably we more or less know what we do with the STN in Parkinson's disease. Even that can probably be improved, but you know, the, the newer targets for psychiatric indications and so on, or also the thalamus, I would say. I, I, my, my feeling is the same, that, that uh, having an anatomist, maybe not in the OR, but you know, um, with these cases in collaboration would, is, is a great idea. Yeah, I, I agree. In an optimal world, I think we can learn many, many, many more things by looking at many more of these specimens if they are available in conjunction with all of the wonderful modern methods that the whole field of neuroscience and neuroimaging um, provides to us, right? Maybe to, to wrap this up a bit, um, in your view, what, what are the biggest struggles that remain for the future? I mean, we have covered some to, to, 
right? Key to success being anatomy and um, meticulous study of what we have. Are there, are there like, what, but what are the struggles? So where are we not yet where we should be in our field? Well, if you look into the history of uh, functional and in particular stereotactic neurosurgery, you see that it always goes in waves of psychosurgery coming up and peaking right after the Second World War and then with the neuroleptics and uh, potent uh, pharmacological uh, means, it, yeah. the psychosurgery came to a halt. And then you see the wave of how stereotactic neurosurgery and functional neurosurgery for movement disorder just explodes and it ramps up in the 1950 and and then with the introduction of levodopa in in the late 1960s again this uh, important method also comes more or less to an abrupt halt and only uh, two decades later with uh, new technology with the deep brain simulation uh, and less destructive surgeries together with CT and MRIs and so on and so forth, you would see that our field then arises and, and now we are just, we are just riding the wave and we are, we are kind of, you know, we, are, we have gathered so much knowledge over the course of the last 30 years. The modern era of DBS now lasts for 30 years. So we're standing on the shoulders of giants if we look back, so many of them. And certainly important is to look back to learn from the past some of the mistakes that had been done in the history, who should we treat. Yeah. Um, so there's also this inherent um, questions or the philosophical question also um, that, that is important here. There are other, other factors important, I think, for the future, yeah. uh, like ethic uh, questions and so on and so forth. It's not only about expanding the, the limits of our technology and, you know, to be... It's, it's certainly good for our field and the challenge should be to make the technology as smart, but at the same time also to be as physiological as possible and to, to do as little harm as possible. So in an optimal world, you would come up with, you know, deep brain simulation without the necessity to open the skull. I mean, there are some attempts for that, so like focused ultrasound, but still then you're back to lesioning the brain, which is also suboptimal if you look back into history. I mean, we have done lesions for so long. I, I sometimes picture that in, in an optimal world, we would want to make our technology invisible as well, right? Exactly. But, but still, what, what the wonderful thing about DBS is, it's at the push of the button, your, your tremor can be stopped at the push of the button. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, to me, it's still, after all these years in the field, it's uh, during surgery, it's uh, this magical moment. And you wish we had at least symptom relief for other diseases at the push of the button. I mean, for the COVID crisis or for diabetes or whatever, wouldn't it be wonderful? You push a button and your, your symptoms are gone. And that's just so fascinating. One, one question that you raised when we talked before was whether, like a very big question, whether with DBS, especially for psychiatry or with neuromodulation in general, do we alter the person, right? I think that that's what you mentioned recently. And that is one of the like big questions, especially as, as the technology gets smarter, right? With closed loop and so on. Yeah. I mean, but we have to see, I think one has to be, one has to be sincere and honest in this case. I mean, by, by stopping a tremor or by stopping the Parkinsonian, the motor symptoms, we already change like yeah like yeah, the, the the person i mean you i i know you're talking of different things so it's so um so that that uh 
in regards to the anxiety of many patients or many patients that fear to be completely altered and that they are not the same after surgery. And this is certainly highly important to learn even more about that and to look into the details in as how far we are really uh, interfering not only with the motor circuits. I mean, and we could, I mean, it, it would be accepted by everyone, you know, the part of personality change that accompanies the, the tremors alleviation or rigidity alleviation. No doubt that everyone accepts that. But the question is where, so as to how far we interfere with other circuits en passant along, and that may really escape our clinical notice. And because it's sometimes not too easy to grasp these rather subtle changes that only uh, come in over a long period of time and maybe rather invisible uh, on occasion of uh, a short patient visit in uh, the outpatient clinic or so. Sure. I mean, we know that yeah, we know the motor system, uh, the motor loop is is intertwined with limbic and associative loops on like cortical striatal and corticostriatal and so on levels. So, so are you are you suggesting we already alter more than we think? Is is that what you're just referring to with, for example, SDNDBS? Yes, I mean, I I think yeah, with SDNDBS, I'm I'm quite convinced uh, that this is the. The case, someone said STN surgery is psychosurgery. I mean, it must not necessarily be um, associated with deteriorate or with the most dramatic changes, you know, that every one of us would fear that you end up being a Frankenstein, a zombie. Sure. Yeah. I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the subtleties that may be visible at home to the spouse or to the children and so on yeah. and so forth. And and then again, it's, it's so hard to disentangle this then from the natural disease curve. And a lot, of course, about uh, Parkinson's disease in this context, where this really matters. And, and still, we have not reached the end of insights into that, I think. I have the impression that we understand very much what is possible with DBS in terms of alleviation of motor symptoms. But at this point, I think we, we are still lacking tremendous uh, insights and yeah. our instruments, you know, like the UPDRS, the motor score, these scales, it's just very difficult to apply to these changes that, that we are discussing uh, here. Right? Sure. And, yeah. I think this is, apart from technical challenges, um, this is certainly an important uh, field also for the future. Yeah. Makes sense. So I, I think both of us need to uh, go to clinics tomorrow. So we, we, will, um, we will wrap up with two last questions. Um, one is just um, about like any topics that we did not cover that you would have liked to talk about. Did I, like, is there something you think that should have been said here or? Um, well, I think we, 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 we touched upon the, importance of a the working environment so that i'm convinced and that's uh, that the interdisciplinarity and the cooperation is at the core of our field and that functional neurosurgery is, is, by nature there's it involves more than just one discipline and um yeah i think that's that's the one of the most important things and so you have to be part of the team you even said that that you 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 learned from maybe the mistakes of rolf hassler that uh communication form in the OR is very important, right? So to keep up the keep up the good spirit with the neurosurgeon. Yeah, it's very important. <laughs> keep up the good spirit. Being a physiologist, you know, the neurologist tells to your left ear 
got the neurosurgeon, I can't stand anymore. On your other ear, he wishes not only the patient would be under general anesthesia in an optimal world, but the neurologist as well, and so on. <laughs> So yeah, and you're standing in between and you think you have the best idea how and where to operate. But sometimes it's just good to be, you know, like this cement in between the disciplines to put it all together, to push everyone to the limits to the best possible, and also to stand back uh, how to perform surgery. You have to know your limits and, and the bigger picture is the success of this surgery because what matters most of course is is the patient's outcome then and this can also only be achieved if all work together great when when we when we skyped um during the day uh, so it's it's quite late here in germany currently but when we skyped during the day we saw Uh, I saw your office at the um, university clinic in in Hamburg, and I, it was filled with books, with a lot of books, and most of them were old books. So, mm -hmm. um, but so 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 you you really have proof, uh, physical proof, mm -hmm. that you are really interested in these uh, things. <laughs> and um, so I I want to start a small tradition to ask as a, maybe the last question to every participant of this podcast to ask. <laughs> Um, the following question. So imagine you were cast off to a desert island and can only take one scientific book with you. Which one do you take? So in other words, which book would you recommend to read for our listeners that maybe has truly changed the way you think about the brain? There's only one. I know there are a lot probably, but you can only pick one. I can only pick one. <laughs> <laughs> You really have to picture Christian here with a lot of books behind him. And now he has to go to the desert island and yeah. can only take pick see. one. Okay. I, Which one do you choose? I, uh, it, it should be a scientific book, right? So otherwise for non-scientific, certainly I will take the, the biography of uh, Paul Carl Firearmed with me, but that didn't uh, influence my way, how I, the way that I think about the brain. Or so, and, and his, his bio autobiography is called Waste of Time. And this just uh, shapes the way that I look both on, onto science and life in general and so on. I think that's fair. I think you, I think you could take that one. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Great, Christian. Thank you so much for taking part in this. I'm, I'm really honored and glad that you took the time. And um, yeah, thank you so much for, for participating. And let's talk soon. Yeah, let's talk soon. It was my pleasure and honor being part of this. Andy, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Stimulating Brains.